What up, guys? Your boy Quake back with a brand new episode of the Diverse Mentality Podcast, number 241. And man, we got a lot, a lot to talk about. A lot of it I've covered already. I've uploaded a lot of the news uh, that was supposed to be covered on the podcast. Well, it's going to be covered on here, but it's earlier out, you know, because when sometimes when news comes out, I have to get it out like immediately because that's when usually you get the best views. So I covered a lot of what's going on with Diddy and the lawsuit and Cassie and the settlement. I also covered uh, 50 Cent and uh, Rick Ross with the album sales and 50 clowning it. Uh, I covered, well, I think those are the two things, the main two things that I covered early. Um, as far as the main channel goes, the reason why I'm right now, if you, if you look at the main channel, I've uploaded like five videos within like five days. So basically every day, a new video. The reason why I'm doing this is because I'm going back to the old format on the channel. It just seems like I can't, if I take a break, not really taking a break, it's just not uploading. If you don't upload a while on the channel, if I, when I drop a documentary, it just doesn't seem to perform, you know, well, I see other channels do that and they perform fucking amazing. Like their channels will literally take four or five months, you know, working on a documentary, they drop one and then boom, it's still getting millions, 2 million, 3 million views. Me, I do that and I get banned and I don't, nobody ever sees my content and nobody watches my shit. It's weird. So I have to go back to this formula of dropping news on the main channel, which a lot of people liked anyways. Um, a lot of my audience that I gained was from that format. So maybe that's the reason why my channel performs like that. And it's not solely on just documentaries because back when like, you know, the six, nine and machine gun Kelly and Eminem thing happened, that was my biggest year on YouTube ever. You know, just in one month, I believe with the Eminem and machine gun Kelly thing, I gained like 75,000 subscribers. So, you know, it was built on news and documentaries, both like combined. So I have to, I have to go with that formula where I drop news here and there, and then I'll drop a documentary. I drop news here and there, then drop a documentary because it just seems like my documentaries perform better like that. So overall, everybody wins. You know, uh, if you didn't subscribe to the channel for just news, you're not getting that. You're getting documentaries as well. You know, if you subscribe just for news, you're getting documentaries. So it's like everybody gets their kind of fair share of what they want on the main channel. Uh, the good news is that the G unit spinner story is doing really well. Uh, the, the, the views on it within five days, like at 130,000, which is beating even my get rich documentary, which sucks, which is kind of like a, it's like a positive and negative thing because I wish the get rich one would perform a lot better and do a lot better. But because that G unit spinner one, that's chain story is doing well. It's like trickling off to the get rich one. So hopefully, you know, it picks up the get rich and it starts to do better for the get rich documentary. But that's, that's kind of, so if you see like on the video version of this podcast, I'm in different clothes, you know, stuff like that. And topics are a little bit out of whack. It might seem a little bit out of whack. Uh, it's because of that. I already pre-recorded it or not pre-recorded it, but recorded it right when it happened. And then I'm just adding it to the full podcast. So that's going to be around the time when we're talking about the Diddy stuff. You're going to hear a lot of that, uh, you know, because I reported on Thursday when the lawsuit happened and then Friday it was settled. So, you know, like mixing those two together is kind of, weird in itself because of the settlement. So uh, let's just get into the news. And there's a lot to talk about. And right now, Keefe D is going through it in jail. Tupac murder suspect Keefe D has reportedly been having a rough time behind bars, according to Reggie Wright Jr. In an interview with Bomb First published on Friday, November 7th, Reggie, who worked at Suge Knight's The Row Records, and his father was previously a gang enforcer at the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department Unit Operation Safe Street in Compton, and alleged that Keefe has already been jumped multiple times in jail as he awaits trial and may be in for far worse. So, 
Let's play the clip for you guys. Heard you got whooped on about three times already in there. And I got that confirmed from a very, very good source. But nothing major, just, you know, kicked, stomped, hit. Nothing like he's going to get when those dudes in the pen find out how he was saying that they soft. Yeah, that audio's still out there. You better call Vlad and try to get it pulled down. So, yeah, fairly simple clip. Basically saying he got, you know, kicked, stuff like this. Not really uh, attacked, but he's saying once he finally gets sentenced and goes to actual prison, that it's going to be a lot worse for him because, you know, he apparently has a clip out there saying that people in prison are soft uh, and people do not like that, obviously. Uh, especially people whose whole life rev- revolves around being locked up and that's their whole, that's all they know. So to be disrespecting somebody uh, or people that are locked up, you know, that's not going to really go well. You know, uh, basically, I've never been to prison or jail, thankfully. And from what I've s- learned from other people that have been locked up, it's really just about uh, respecting people's space. That's all it is because you got to think some of these people are serving life or serving 30, 40 years. So that little cubicle that they have is everything to them, literally everything. So if you go in there disrespecting that space or, you know, not, you know, moving a certain way, it's, you know, they'll, they'll kill you over that because that's all they have. Literally, if you're locked up for the next 20, 30 years, that little cubicle is your everything. You have everything in your life going on in that little cubicle, which is wild to think about. You know, you got this little space and that's all, you know, pretty much 23 hours of the day when you're, you know, in the cell or whatever. So, you know, it's all about just moving respect when it comes to jail and prison. That's at least what everybody that's been locked up that I've talked to have said. That's all. If you just mind your business, show respect, uh, nobody's going to really mess with you. Once you start getting involved in different things, act tough and all these other things, then it's going to get pretty bad for you. So, because most people... You know, they just want to do their time and move on, man. Uh, some people don't have a long sentence, so they don't want to get involved in a lot of stupid things. Some people are there for like two, three years. Some people are there for five. You know, they just don't want to get involved and just kind of do their time and just move on with life. Um, but horrible, man. I, I couldn't imagine being locked up. Like, I couldn't imagine being in jail for a day, let alone 30 days, let alone, you know, a year, let alone five, ten. Like, yeah, just it's crazy, man. So... Uh, we'll see how Keefe D deals with the situation. I don't know if he's ever been locked up before this. I don't know. Uh, maybe. I could. I, I don't know. I don't know Keefe D's history like that. I am reading Keefe D's book, uh, you know, the one he published in 2019 that basically got him in trouble. I want to read it because I'm doing the, the Diddy $1 million hit documentary. So with that, I want to, you know, read the details of that and see what Keefe D said about that $1 million hit. So uh, I will be, you know, reading excerpts of that in the documentary, like I usually do with a lot of my documentaries, I'll, I'll take like, I'll read a bunch of magazines or books and stuff like that and quote them and stuff like that. So yeah, be on the lookout for that Diddy $1 million hit. I was going to release, you know, I was, I was going to work on these past couple of days, but so much stuff has been happening with the news that I've been just uploading on the main channel, which is good because it'll trickle on to the documentary performing well, hopefully. So uh, I do have a big Diddy type of audience because of that. Actually, my biggest, most viewed video ever, that's not a documentary, just a news clip, is that Diddy uh, warning Eminem clip. That has like 12 million views, I think, some crazy number like that. So, um, you know, that that's that's built a huge audience just off that. So, you know, the Diddy $1 million hit one, I think is going to be a huge success, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm definitely going to take my time with it. I'm not going to rush anything. Uh, it needs to be done properly. And I'm just gathering, like, information, watching these documentaries, watching a bunch of interviews, you know, gathering the pieces together and then writing a whole story on it. So 
you know, hopefully it doesn't get, you know, one of my cars blown up or something like that. Uh, because that happens, you know, you guys know who did it. You guys know who did it. Puffy. Puffy. Guilty as fuck. No, <laughs> Where's the... He did that shit. Guilty as fuck. Yeah. He did that shit. Guilty as fuck. Speaking of 50, he did that shit. Guilty as fuck. Uh, 50 has officially avoided criminal charges over the mic throwing incident. So remember uh, when he was performing, I think, in Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, Los Angeles. He got mad. His mic wasn't working. Another mic he picked up wasn't working. Got mad through that. And then the third time he threw the third one, chucked it, and hit uh, a radio a personality in the forehead. And she got knocked over and had to go to the hospital, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and apparently he's avoiding criminal charges. And I think I know why it's probably, this is just me guessing. I'm not saying I know anything or confirmed anything. It's probably because either she was in the area of the media or was past the media line. I forgot what it was. I think she was past the media line or something like that. She was in a restricted area. That's probably why he's avoiding charges or behind the scenes. He just paid her like a quick, you know, 50000 or 100000 paid for her medical bills. And, you know, she kind of moves on with the situation, walks away with a little bit of money, and everybody's happy. Uh, so let's go over the article. 50 Cent will not face charges for an August incident in which he threw a microphone while on stage and supposedly hit a woman in the face. The Los Angeles City Attorney's Office will not file criminal charges against the unit mogul. Instead, the office will keep the case open until next August and may change their mind if Fifth gets in additional trouble. So Fifth, don't be getting in additional trouble, man. At this time, no criminal charges have been filed against Mr. Jackson, Deputy, Deputy Director of Communication. Ivor Prine wrote in a statement to Hip Hop DX, this matter has been set for a city attorney hearing, which is a pre-filing diversion available to eligible individuals. The case will remain open for the duration of one year from the date of the incident. It can be reevaluated for possible criminal charges should there be any further incidents between the parties or any additional reports made against Mr. Jackson. If there are no further police contacts with Mr. Jackson, this case will be closed after one year from the incident date. The incident was originally presented to L.A. District Attorney as a potential felony battery case. However, the office decided to hand it over to the city attorney instead, who in turn made the aforementioned decision. So, yeah, that's when he was performing at the Crypto Arena August 30th uh, and then just got mad and kind of chucked, chucked the microphone and damn left a huge mark on that girl's forehead. Uh, that's... Yeah, microphones are pretty heavy, man. I think people underestimate how, you know, they're not like super heavy. You know, I'm not saying this is a fucking, you know, like a metal rod you're just chucking at somebody or something that's really, really heavy. But, I mean, they're the, you chuck a microphone pretty quick. That that part of the microphone, the tip of it, or like the circle, whatever the fuck it's called, the, the grill area, whatever. I don't know what the fuck you're going to call it. But that part is rough, man. And, you know, I have a microphone here somewhere. I bet you if I chuck that shit at you... You might be knocked the fuck out. I'm not even going to lie. So, uh, you know, people were saying, you know, oh, she's overreacting or this is, you know, a microphone would never do that. Something else happened. Nah. You guys get something chucked at your face, man. A lot of things are going to hurt you chucked at your face. Your face is, you know, it's literally barely any skin, man. It's just bone. Like you have a little bit of meat, tiny bit. Maybe I don't even know if you have meat much in your face. Barely. Mainly it's skin and you know, skull and bone. That's really what it is. That's why when something happens with your face, it gets like parts of your face can get broken a lot easier. You know, at least like on your, your body, you got a bunch of muscles, you know, to help you if something gets thrown there, but your face, hell no, that shit, anything gets thrown in your face, that shit hurt. So, uh, yeah, we'll keep our eye on this and you know, if 50 stays out of trouble, he'll be good. Speaking of staying out of trouble, Tasha K 
and Cardi B. I know I talk about Tosh K damn near, and this Cardi B case damn near every single other episode. But uh, I think this is well noted that Tosh K hasn't learned her lesson. I talked about this, I think, on the last episode, maybe the one previous, where she's just constantly spewing out, you know, negativity towards celebrities. Like, she hasn't learned her lesson from Cardi B at all. Like, this woman is just about gossip and what what can she dig at from people. So the whole Will Smith thing, I'm not going to, you know, get into it because I really honestly don't know about it because I don't really pay attention to, like, gossipy type things uh, and rumors and shit like that. But basically something about, like, Will Smith being gay and, you know, he had he slept with somebody like this and blah, blah, blah. Tosh K interviewed that person. Uh, I said it I said it on the other podcast that I saw, you know, a TikTok clip of it. Immediately when I saw Tosh K, I commented, I was like, why does anybody even watch Tosh K anymore? You know, we went on our channel. It sounded like some real hater shit for me, but I'm not even going to lie. Uh, you know, Cardi B has done a U-turn. So Cardi B initially was thinking about forgiving Tosh K and moving on from the lawsuit and kind of relieving Tosh K of all the, the worry and stress of bankruptcy and all this other stuff that she has to owe all this money. But Cardi B saw the Will Smith gay clip, and nope, she's not forgiving her. And that's a huge round of applause to Cardi B because Tosh K clearly hasn't learned her lesson. Like, how do you go... How do you get sued from all this money, from you spewing bullshit? File bankruptcy and cry your way of trying to get out of it and, you know, crying about it to still doing the same thing that got you in trouble in the first place. You haven't learned nothing, nothing, nothing crossed your mind where you're learning nothing. And that's what I mean. The, the, the day that she lost that court suit with Cardi B, literally she went on YouTube live and had no accountability for what she did. Nothing on that YouTube live, no accountability at all. Nothing, nothing, never, never even said one thing. Oh, I messed up. I shouldn't have done this. Nothing. So that's, she learned nothing from this. And that's the problem with, with Tasha K. And that's the problem I have with her. It's like, why, why spew negativity all the time? Like, I get it. It's clickbait. You know, people just love that negative shit, which is unfortunate because, you know, like I do this G-Unit Spinner story. It's about robbing, you know, Buck's homie. And more people like to watch that and is performing better than my Get Rich one, which is, yeah, it has some, some type of violence in it a little bit. You know, the story of 50 punching that guy that robbed that girl, you know, little things like that. But overall, it's about a beautiful album that was created, one of the best hip-hop albums of all time. But it's not getting as much coverage as something like this, where, you know, it's like June and Spinner getting robbed and more, not coverage, but, you know, views. Like, more people click on that type of stuff. So it's unfortunate. But let's go over the article. Uh, Cardi B has gone back on the recent ceasefire between her and Tasha K after the latter gave a platform to someone slandering Will Smith. On Thursday, November 16th, the 31-year-old rapper went live on Instagram and aired out her frustrations at the talk show host for interviewing the French Prince, the French, French, the Fresh Prince's former friend and assistant, Brother Bilal, Brother Bilal, who alleged that he once caught the actor having sex with Dwayne Martin. I don't know who Dwayne Martin is. I don't even, I barely know actors' names. I'm not even going to lie to y'all. I know Jackie Chan. I know Arnold Schwarzenegger. I know uh, who Jean-Claude Van Damme. I know Jason Statham, like those actors, like Will Smith. Yeah, that's about it, but I don't really know too many. So let me play the clip, actually, for you guys. I don't like how I got fooled a couple of weeks ago. Some people just never change. Never, never, never change. And you want to know something? I don't like that shit. I don't like what people be doing to Will Smith. 
I be feeling like Will Smith is very unproblematic. And I feel like he got like a nice heart. And that's the thing. I found out that Will Smith is a Libra. I always said this. Like Libras, we be getting tried. We be getting tried. And then when we outburst, we outburst so fucking heavy that we become the, the ones in the wrong. Because when we, when we throw that outburst after we get so much, our, we, we go so crazy that people be like, oh my God, what the fuck? Oh, this bitch is really crazy. Oh, this nigga is fucking crazy for real. And I feel like y'all doing that to Will Smith. And I don't like that some people never fucking change. I'm so tired of people picking on that man. Dead ass. And like, I feel like, I'm not, it's not even, uh, your job as a journalist, you should, you should like be able to detect whether somebody is bullshitting or not. Because anybody could say something about anybody. Look what happened to me in 2018 when a bitch that I never, that I don't even, I, I didn't even know her fucking name was saying that she know me, that she did, she went to my house. Anybody could say a fucking fake-ass story about you and people going to fucking fake-ass believe it. So it should be your job to detect whether something is is a lie or not or like to have any type of proof, any type of evidence. Exactly. And this is why Cardi B, if you ever get on this podcast, let's talk about Tosh K. I don't know why. I like, I like, I like somebody getting what they deserve, man. It's something that it's satisfying, especially an evil person that deserves it. And Tasha K, you can tell is an evil person. The people that watch her, I don't know why they still believe her. After the proof was there that she lied, she lost the whole lawsuit, lied on Cardi B's name. Like why, why do people like to, destroy other people's lives and try to make money off it. And that's what Tasha K is doing. A bad person deserves bad things happening to them. It's just, that's what it is. Has she been remorseful after, even though Cardi B gave her 90 million chances to not go to court and actually take everything down and she still didn't do it? Has she been remorseful after, after all the finances and all this stuff going wrong? You know, I could see like how Cardi B, I could see where she, you know, you could be a little bit lenient and be like, you know what? Instead of, you know, whatever amount, I forget what the amount was that owed something like 20-something million, whatever crazy amount it was. You know what? I'll reduce to like 5 million. And then you can, you know, we can work with that. I would do that because I, I still have a sweet spot or like a soft spot for some people sometimes. But clearly Tosh K showed no remorse. Still interviewing people, speaking down on other people. So don't let your foot off her neck, Cardi B. Please don't do it. Please don't let her trick you. And if you are on this podcast right now, I'll tell you right now, she's tricking you. She is not the type of person that if you give her, if you let her slide on out with this lawsuit and face no repercussions from this lawsuit, a person like that doesn't face repercussions. It's just going to do it more and more and more and at worse levels. So, you know, maybe she's doing this stuff, this Will Smith stuff to try to pay her own bills because she's in this you know, lawsuit that she is. But still, you know, you could pay bills. You can you can rebrand yourself and just talk about the stuff that's going on right now. Like me, I talk about the Diddy and Cassie lawsuit, you know, and I don't sit here and spew rumors about Diddy and say, oh, I heard Diddy, you know, did this and that. No, like I, I know there's a lot of people that say a lot of different things, but I, 
I'm open-minded about, you know, hey, somebody's probably innocent, somebody's probably guilty. I'm open-minded about it. Now, you know, there's certain ways that I lean on certain things because of, you know, reports and stories, but at the end of the day, there's no evidence. That's what people need to remember, evidence. You know, people can say stories left and right about people, but until there's, like, real proof that somebody did something, then you can kind of take a side and choose what you what you feel about the person or the situation. But people... Nowadays, about clickbait. It's about you know no no logical thinking at all. It's about just reacting and just you know uh, wild thing. But uh, we'll keep our eye on this and hopefully you know like I said, Cardi B keeps her foot on Tasha K's neck. Drizzy Drake, of course, he's not gonna let you know Kendrick beat him in any category. He's not gonna he's not gonna like that. You know, Drake is Drake and Kendrick is Kendrick, and I feel like the two need to battle man before it becomes too old before they both get washed up at a certain point because it's coming eventually these artists are not going to be delivering the style of music at the peak of their career anymore i think so at least uh drake to me has passed that a long time ago um i just don't really find drake's music really now he has a song or two sometimes where i'm like okay this is cool that's really about it album wise you know like i've talked about drake and just him missing the whole for me, like an album from him, it's been a while, man, uh, that I really, really enjoyed an album from him since 2015. So it's been a while. Um, I did like Scorpion here and there. I think that was like the most, you know, I ranked Drake's album and all stuff. But anyways, Kendrick, on the other hand, Mr. Morale and Big Steppers, that was a pretty decent album too. It wasn't like the greatest, but it has, you know, tracks that I enjoyed on there. So even Kendrick's kind of gone to the path of like, I don't know if I'm really, you know, five years for that. And it wasn't really that, that like, oh my God, it was, it was a great album, but it just wasn't, you know, anyways, Drake and Kendrick should be going at it. And here's one thing that they're going at it uh, for. Drake has snatched the title belt back from Kendrick Lamar as the sixth God now wears the crown for the highest grossing rap tour ever. According to touring data, Drake Drizzy eclipsed Kendrick Lamar's Big Steppers tour by earning 129 million for his it's all a blur tour drake will end up shattering the record and setting the bar even higher because that figure only accounts for 30 of the 72 shows he's done on tour so far uh, when the numbers come in for the other two dates expected 1.129.7 million figure to be more than double uh, going into his tour tour run some speculated drake should have done stadiums but it looks like it looks like as if the arena strategy has worked out just fine for the OBO boss. So yeah, uh, 30, 30 out of 72 shows and he's already made 129, damn near 130 basically because 0.7 is round that up, 130 million with 30 shows. Damn, that's like, what's the math on that bitch? I'm stupid, so let me, let me pull out my calculator. Horrible at math. What's the math on that? 130 divided by 30. Damn, son, where'd you find this? 4 million... Four million and about three hundred thirty thousand dollars per show, four million, basically four point three million dollars per show. Wow, damn son, where'd you find this? And people say Drake ain't a billionaire. He's a billionaire. Now is Drake netting all that? No. Uh, and Twenty One Savage was with him, so I'm sure uh, at that four point three billion, maybe not billion. <laughs> I was just making four point three billion a show. That would be re- uh, utterly ridiculous. That that guy would be bigger than Michael Jackson, obviously. But uh, Four point three million a show. I think twenty one savage. Let's just say taxes, all that stuff. They walk away with two point five million because taxes, all the you know equipment, stadium, all the people you're paying, 
you know, the fees, or whatever the hell, all that stuff. That let's just say they walk with away two point five million, which is still a lot of fucking money per show. Twenty one Savage probably gets a million out of that, eight hundred thousand to million. Let's just say a million just to even out the numbers. And Drake walks with about one point five million per show, which is still fucking ridiculous because he's thirty shows, one point five million. He basically walked away with forty five million dollars in thirty shows. Then you add in, you know, the other shows. Let's just say he's doing one point five million out of seventy two shows. What is that? One point five million. Let's do the math on that because. Once again, I need my trusty, dusty uh, calculator here. Uh, let's see. So he's, I'm just throwing random numbers out here. I don't know if this is actually it, you know, but he made $67.5 million in 72 shows if the splits are like that. I'm just throwing random splits here, which is insane money. Um, you know, at any given moment, this guy can generate $100 million for himself, you know. And that's 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 what's making great music's about. When you know how to make music, it's gonna stand the test of time. Drake, twenty years from now, can go on tour and still make this kind of money. So he'll never be broke. That's just the reality of it. Um, and that's you know Michael Jackson at the time when he you know it was reported that he went on his uh, what is that? What was the tour called, man? The one that went the last one. This is it. This is a tour when he was going you know to the UK or in Europe or whatever in London or something like that. Yeah. He was doing a bunch of shows there. Uh, it was reported that he was broke. Basically, he was doing these shows to get out of debt. But that's my point. My point in that is, like, you know, if any of these artists at this level, this high level of Drake, Eminem, Jay-Z, Kanye, 50, uh, J. Cole, Kendrick, all these high-tier A-list rappers, at any given moment, they can just go on tour and generate 40 to 60 to $100 million for themselves. So... That's what Michael was doing before he passed away. Uh, he was he was in debt a lot, and then you know, when decided to do this last final lap, a final lap, <laughs> but this this is it tour, and you know never ended up doing it. But you know they're adding on dates, like a lot of ridiculous dates, like dates back to back to back. And he was you know he's fifty years old and he was pretty frail, pretty skinny, uh, looked like he wasn't in the greatest health. But when he was performing, he looked really good. So. Yeah, just wild numbers, man. So he's beat officially uh, Kendrick Lamar. Uh, and what was Kendrick Lamar's numbers, man? I don't see him on here. Kendrick Lamar had earned uh, $110.9 million. Yeah, so. Yeah, but that says, hmm. Came to an end of September having earned $110.9 million from 929,000 tickets across 73 shows. So that's a whole... 73 shows. So that's the full tour. So Drake is like eclipsed that by like 2x. Yeah, two. Yeah, he eclipsed that by two times, two and a half times over. Because if that's 73 shows for Kendrick Lamar at 110 million, Drake is at 129 with only 30 shows. They basically did the same amount of shows. Drake did 72, Kendrick did 73. So the number of shows isn't really wow. So yeah, Drake, Drake definitely, obviously, Drake's a bigger like mainstream artists than Kendrick is. Kendrick isn't about the hits and stuff like that. He's not focused on just making hits. He just makes whatever music he likes and ends up becoming a hit for the most part. Um, but yeah, cool, cool little competition, cool little story. This is, this was, this had a lot of people talking. Jeezy, uh, according to Coach K, was more relevant than Jay-Z in his prime. Uh, when people heard this, a lot of people were laughing. A lot of people were agreeing. A lot of people were confused 
I'm going to tell you what you what I think. You know, first let's go over the article. Uh, Coach K is best known as the founder of Quality Control, the label that brought the world Migos, Lil Yachty, Lil Baby, and more. But before that, he was Jeezy's manager. And in a recent interview, Coach K has said that his former client at one point was more relevant than even Jay-Z. Yeah, uh, the rap mogul appeared on the latest episode of the podcast, Business Untitled, which dropped on Wednesday, November 15th, and, w- and was asked about the amount he knew that Jeezy had really made it. He pegged it to the July 2004 release of the rapper's mixtape, The Streets is Watching. We pressed up like 100,000 copies, put them on the streets, and within a month, the phone started ringing. We were doing the Chitlin circuit, he said. We put that mixtape out, mixtape out in July, and by February, we did $6 million on the road. All cash. We hadn't even put an album out yet. We'll play the clip, actually, for you guys. What was the moment, though? I got to ask you all, because I'm just fucking intrigued myself. Like, what was the moment, real quick, you felt Gucci, I'm not Gucci, uh, Jeezy was, because Jeezy, for real, for me, Jeezy was bigger than the Migos in my era. You know what I'm saying? It was like. No, he was the biggest. It was like. What the fuck I mean, is happening? Jeezy at that time. What was the moment you and it, knew? You might get, I mean, New Yorkers might say this. But. I remember, his remember that Jeezy, CNN shit? Jeezy was, was probably more relevant than Jay. Really? No, at that point? At that point. Yeah. I don't know, man. But you from New York, bro. But, but he was. I'm from New York. You from New York. Jeezy from the South. New York was on him like that. And the whole South. They hadn't really the South still, you know what I'm saying? Like to big pimping, like the South wasn't into and it's real and to big pimping. I don't know, man. I'm gonna disagree with that. Yeah, I mean, but, but you from Brooklyn. Uh, but they were in the conversation. Yeah. But Jay, I'm gonna say, I'm say Jay, no, Jay was much bigger, but I'm saying like irrelevant. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's moments where it's moments where fucking some of these smaller artists is more relevant than the bigger artists. You know? Not Jay and Jeezy, though, but I'm going to let you out that because you're from Atlanta. <laughs> I'm not from Atlanta, but that's where I made my money. All right, nothing Coach K said here was wrong or inaccurate. Uh, in 2004, Jay-Z essentially had retired. Uh, he dropped a black album, said, I'm done. You know, So in 2004, he was slowly you know, dwindling in terms of his music career and relevancy. So it makes sense in 2004 for Jeezy to be more relevant than Jay-Z. The problem is, in America specifically, is everybody thinks Jay-Z is this almighty, greatest, biggest rapper that's ever existed. And that if you say anything or anybody was more relevant and bigger, people go against you. And like, oh, you're stupid or you know what you're talking about. No, the numbers, the numbers say that Jay-Z has never been the biggest artist in any year in hip-hop ever in terms of sales and just number one records. The only year you could kind of throw there and be like, this was Jay-Z's year was 2009. That's it. That's the only year that I can look at and be like, you know what? Maybe Jay-Z was the biggest at that moment because he had Empire State of Mind, which is number one. Uh, Blueprint 3 ended up doing like 470,000 first week, something like that, 460, uh, which is insane good numbers for first week, especially in the 2009 era because nobody was really doing those type of numbers. Uh, Eminem Eminem had the bigger first week sales, but was Relapse bigger than, you know, Blueprint 3? I would argue probably not. So maybe Jay-Z you could give because Eminem had, you know, Eminem did have number one with Crack a Bottle, but it wasn't like Empire State of Mind. Empire State of Mind was like number one for weeks and weeks, I think. And I don't know. I don't know how long it was number one, but 
It was number one for, for quite some time. It was a New York anthem. It still is a New York anthem. So maybe 2009, you could say Jay-Z was the biggest. But Jay-Z has never been this big, dominant, you know, artist. The most he's ever sold first week is about, I think, 700,000 with uh, maybe Kingdom Come. I think that's his best first week sales. I'm not counting that Samsung bullshit deal that Jay-Z did that it's not a million copies, bro. If you get Samsung to purchase your album, you cheated your way to a million copies first week. Uh, do it the normal way, like everybody else is fucking doing it. Uh, so I'm not counting that as a, as a, that's a cheating way, which just goes to show that Jay-Z wanted to be part of that million, you know, first week sales club, but has never, never reached that. He just tried to finesse away into getting into that. Um, so I think it was Kingdom Come as the first best first week sales. They did 680,000 copies, damn near 700,000. Uh, there's no other album in his career where he did that great of first week numbers. Let me see. I'm going to go on the blueprint. Yeah, Blueprint did 427,000. Uh, Blueprint 2. Let's see where that's at. Blueprint 2 did. Where's the first week sales on Blueprint 2? Where's the first week sales on Blueprint 2? We'll see it on here. What did he do first week? Okay, there's no first week sales on Blueprint 2. What the fuck? Maybe Wikipedia didn't add it. Whatever, it's three times platinum right now, so whatever. We'll just assume it did another 400,000. Let's see what the Black Album did. Black Album did 463,000. So he's been always around the 400,000, which is good numbers, man. That's not like you're not low and you're not high. You're, like, right there, especially in the 2000s. Like, if you're doing 400,000, you were, like, you were, like, a B, a B plus. You know, the A artists were doing, like, anywhere above 600, like, 600, 700, 800,000, damn near a million. Like, those were the A tier hip-hop artists that were doing that. If you're doing around 400,000, you were like B plus, A minus almost, like B plus basically, which is crazy because nowadays if you do 400,000, you're the, the top artist, period. Uh, but back then, you know, uh, 400,000 was like, yeah, you're good, but not that good. <laughs> uh, American Gangsta, what was that? That was kind of like a soundtrack album. So that did 425. So Jay's always been around the 400, um, you know, thousand in terms of sales. You know, Magna Carta, Holy Grail, did 528. Uh, yeah, let's see, Blueprint 3, 476. Yeah, so 476,000. So Kingdom Come was his best uh, sales. And a lot of people critique that album as like probably one of Jay-Z's worst albums. But he did 680,000. That was the closest he's gotten to a million first week. Um, and people look at him like he's done a million copies every single time he's released and that he's, he does all these numbers. Uh, there, you know, in 2004, Jeezy was more relevant than Jay-Z. That's not a big reach. That's not anything sus like, oh my God, shocking. Uh, Jay-Z had retired. He became Def Jam's president. Didn't release anything for the next, basically right when Jeezy blew up, Jay-Z was basically retired. Jay-Z had a role in fucking signing Jeezy to Def Jam. So, you know, that tells you right there. Um, but yeah, people who are like arguing this and like having a big say and deal about him saying that. Nothing really to, to argue about, man. Um, Jeezy, you know, he is right that there's certain artists become more relevant that are way smaller. But just at that moment, they're buzzing, they're hot. But these bigger artists, they're established, meaning like you can, like this year was a perfect example. You got 50 going on the final lap tour and selling out all these shows, but then you got Lil Baby and these other Moneybag Yo and all these other artists trying to do tours and they're not selling out. They're they're having to cancel a lot of shows because they're just not doing. That's the difference in a big artist and just a relevant artist at the moment. 
Uh, you can be relevant but not really be that big because relevancy only lasts for a little bit. Um, you know, and if, and if somebody's not relevant, that doesn't mean that they're, they fell off or that they're whack. They're just not active in that field again. Because every established artist from M to J to, you know, all these big names that I've mentioned before, they can drop an album at any point and people will be interested in listening to it. So that just tells you that they're the bigger artist. You know, relevancy can come and go. That's not really a big deal, I think. So uh, I don't see any issue with, with, with what Coach K said. And if anybody wants to argue with that with me, psh, we can go go toe-to-toe. Cassie and Diddy, the lawsuit. Uh, let's break this down. Like I said, I did uh, previous uh, recordings. So I'm going to insert them here. And uh, this is, uh, you know, the whole breakdown of everything. It's a little bit more detailed than the YouTube version that I uploaded. Because uh, on the podcast, I really don't care if I'm demonetized because we don't really get too many viewers to the point where it affects money-wise. Like some of these some of these get copyrighted and I'm just like, okay, I lost out on like 10 bucks. So it's not like a big deal. But uh, yeah, so it's a lot more detailed than this one. And uh, yeah, Puffy, a.k.a. Diddy, a.k.a. Brother Love. These allegations against Diddy are wild. And I don't even know what to say. I'm just going to get straight into it. I'm going to read exactly what's going on. It's basically surrounding his relationship with Cassie throughout the years that he started dating her in 2006. And a bunch of allegations of abuse, sexual abuse, and so on and so forth. So let's go over it. It's going to involve Suge Knight, Kid Cudi, and various other people. So, you know, yeah, wild allegations. The New York Times reported this saying Sean Combs, the producer and music mogul who has been one of the most famous names in hip-hop for decades, was sued in federal court on Thursday by Cassie, an R&B singer once signed to his label, who accused Mr. Combs of grape and repeated physical abuse over about a decade. In the suit filed in federal district court in Manhattan, Cassie, whose real name is Cassandra Ventura, and who had long been Mr. Combs' romantic partner, says that not long after she met him in 2005, when she was just 19, he began a pattern of control and abuse that included plying her with drugs, beating her, and forcing her to have sex with a succession of male prostitutes while he filmed the encounters. In 2018, the suit says near the end of their relationship, Mr. Combs forced his way into her home and graped her. After years in silence and darkness, Mr. Ventura said in a statement, I am finally ready to tell my story and speak up on behalf of myself and for the benefit of other women who face violence and abuse in their relationships. In a response, a lawyer for Mr. Combs, Ben Brofman, said, Mr. Combs vehemently denies those offensive and outrageous allegations. For the past six months, Mr. Combs has been subjected to Ms. Ventura's persistent demand of $30 million under the th- threat of writing a damaging book about the relationship, which was unequivocally rejected as a blatant blackmail. Despite withdrawing her initial threat, Ms. Ventura has now resorted to filing a lawsuit riddled with baseless and outrageous lies aiming to tarnish Mr. Combs' reputation and seeking a payday. So Diddy's lawyer is automatically off the rip saying this is just to get money and that she has been threatening this for a while and that she wanted $30 million to not say anything. And apparently Diddy said, hell no, you can go to hell with that. And, well, this is the result of that, according to Diddy and his lawyer. Douglas Widder, a lawyer for Miss Ventura, which is Cassie, said the parties had spoken before the suit was filed. Mr. Combs offered... Cassie eight figures, so that's anywhere from a million to nine million nine hundred ninety-nine thousand, to silence her and prevent the filing of this lawsuit. He said she rejected his efforts. So on the other side, Cassie's lawyer is saying, 
you know what? Diddy wanted to silence her, paid, offered to pay anywhere between one million to nine hundred nine million nine hundred ninety nine thousand. She rejected it and didn't care about the money. So that's kind of with these type of cases, that's always the situation where you know it's about money or it's not about money. So you know, as the as you know, once this finally goes to trial, all that stuff with evidence, we'll see if any of this is true or not. Uh, right now, it just got filed, so we're gonna have to see as you know the months and years go down. Uh, when this actually goes to trial, what will happen? But yeah, man, this these stories that you're about to hear that allegedly happened, this is what Cassie's saying happened, is wild. Like you got you got moments where he tried to kill Suge Knight, tried to kill Kid Cudi uh, by blowing up his car. Uh, Hank dangled people from like 17th story hotel balconies, like just crazy movie type of events that you know, you, you just, you're, I'm just mind blown by, and you know, just reading this stuff is crazy. So I'm going to go over some of the documents and this is just like legal, actual paperwork that was filed in the lawsuit. It said throughout the relationship, Mr. Combs was prone to uncontrollable rage and frequently beat Cassie savagely. I know it says Miss Ventura on there, but I'm just going to call her Cassie. Uh, these beatings were witnessed by Mr. Combs, staff and employees of bad boy entertainment, and Mr. Combs related businesses, but no one dared to speak up against uh, their frightening and ferocious boss. Following these episodes of horrific abuse, Mr. Combs would immediately attempt to hide Miss Ventura and the evidence of his violent rage. He often showered her with gifts following incidents of physical abuse and typical pattern of behavior by serial abusers. Uh, this is typical behavior. Usually, um, the you know the abuser would do something wrong, apologize, and try to make up for it in buying things or just you know showing love and being nice for the moment and then they go back into that cycle and then the woman doesn't know you know does this person love me not whatever the case may be it's a it's a very vicious cycle and if you're in it man uh it, it's something that's hard to get out of because you're kind of going against what you love and what you you know what 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 survival basically uh it's a very very vicious thing so uh, in addition to physical assault mr combs frequently reminded miss ventura of his ability to cause serious harm whether by requiring her to carry his gun in her purse or by blowing up the car of a musician that was romantically interested in Miss Ventura. Uh, adding insult to the injury, Mr. Combs used illegal substance and threats of violence to force Miss Ventura into repeated unwanted sexual encounters with male sex workers. Over the years that Mr. Combs abused Miss Ventura physically and sexually, she again and again tried to escape his tight hold over her life. Every time she hid Mr. Combs' vast network of corporations and affiliated entities found her and those who work for Mr. Combs companies implored her to return to him. Many went as far as explicitly state that her failure to return to Mr. Combs would hinder her success in the entertainment industry. When she believed that she had finally separated from her longtime abuser, she joined Mr. Combs for a dinner after which he forced her into her home and graped her while she repeatedly said no and tried to push him away. So uh, Mr. Combs also became deeply involved in Cassie's personal life with his personal staff attending to Cassie's day-to-day -day travel and other needs, including medical care. On multiple occasions, Mr. Combs had Cassie's personal medical records sent directly to his email address. For instance, when Cassie began experiencing memory loss, potentially due to excessive drug use or other head injuries caused by Mr. Combs' beatings, as described below, her MI results were provided directly to Mr. Combs. Mr. Combs also repeatedly arranged for his staff to drive uh, Cassie to certain doctor's appointments. So uh, medical records obviously is private, so that's that's you know that alone is violation. Uh, in this way, Mr. Combs exerted ownership over Cassie, another example of 
the ways in which he manipulated Cassie and ensured obedience. Early on in their relationship, he asked Cassie what she called her grandfather. When Miss when Cassie uh, said that she referred to her grandfather as Pop Pop, Mr. Combs perversely insisted that Cassie refer to him with that nickname. That is some wild, wild things, man. Uh, yeah, calling somebody Pop Pop and that's your like romantic lover. It's kind of weird. I ain't gonna lie. Uh, all this is allegedly, by the way, guys. I don't want to, you know, I don't want you guys to think and be like, oh, this has happened. This is real. This is, we got to wait until the actual, you know, the court proceedings, all that stuff happened. You know, the trial happens. Uh, then we'll know, you know, based off of evidence, whether actually did he did this stuff. And I know it's easy to just point fingers and be like, yeah, yeah, he did this. Just, you know, this is just right now allegations. But it's not looking good, man. Uh, Diddy's getting allegations of, you know, the Tupac hit for a million dollars, you know, that he allegedly put a million dollars in Tupac's head and they got him. That's not looking good because Keefe D is locked up. So, uh, yeah, just overall, it's not looking good. Here is a story of Diddy basically trying to track down Suge Knight and kill him. Uh, this is wild. Uh, this is no surprise, though. You know, Diddy and Suge Knight do not get along. Of course, we know the history. Uh, Cassie was also exposed to intense violence that pervaded Combs's rise to fame. For example, on one occasion when Mr. Combs and Cassie were using drugs together in his home, one of his security staff barged in and announced that Suge Knight, a longtime rival of Mr. Combs, was spotted at Mel's drive-in diner in Los Angeles. Mr. Combs began to get dressed, retrieved multiple guns from a safe, and ran out of his home to where he believed Mr. Knight was dining. Cassie became terrified and began to cry. Wow. I wonder what happened that night and why nothing really popped off. Um, I wonder who got into his head, maybe didn't find Suge Knight where he thought he would find him, but that would be crazy. That would have been a whole different story. Uh, clearly a temper problem there. Um, and this is wild. Now, this Kid Cudi, who at one point had a type of relationship with Cassie, uh, did he basically threaten to blow up his car? So this document says, in February 2012, during Paris Fashion Week, Mr. Combs told Cassie that he was going to blow up Kid Cudi's car and that he wanted to ensure that Kid Cudi was home with his friends when it happened. Around that time, Kid Cudi's car exploded in his driveway, so it happened. It happened. Through a spokeswoman, Kid Cudi confirmed Cassie's account. This is all true, he said. All true. The car blowing up, all the stuff about him getting jealous, all that stuff, all true, which is wild. And this is the wild stuff about sex workers and um, how, you know, basically Combs forced her to do stuff with other men and, uh, you know, without her wanting to do it. Uh, here's the, the the actual document. Mr. Combs always supplies Cassie and the sex worker with copious amounts of drugs before and during the FOs. Uh, Cassie was given ecstasy, cocaine, GHB, ketamine, marijuana, and alcohol in excess amounts during FOs, which allowed her to disassociate during those horrific encounters. It became commonplace to get IV fluids in the days after an FO to recover from excessive substances pushed upon her. That is some evil stuff, man, if this stuff is true. Evil, evil, evil. Somebody calls him brother love. This ain't no love, brother love. This is uh, brother hate. This is brother destroy. This is brother kill someone's soul. Yeah, man, somebody with power like that, you know, it's really hard to get out of those situations. Frequently, her anxiety before an FO would become so great that she would become physically ill. 
sometimes to the point of vomiting while kneeling over a toilet. Mr. Combs would shame her into performing for him, eventually forcing her to get up and proceed with the encounter. She knew firsthand that telling Mr. Combs that she did not want to engage in FOs was met with anger and violence. In addition, any suggestion that Cassie would reuse would refuse the FO or otherwise report Mr. Combs' abuse was met with ultimatums by Mr. Combs, who would say that Cassie could not go to the police because she had a lot to lose. Uh, you know, without going into too much crazy details about the 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 you know stuff with the males that she was doing, he basically would watch. Uh, you know do his thing in the corner, which is some freak stuff. They would have these like face masks, you know, involved costumes like masquerade masks and lingerie uh, that continued for years taking place at high-end hotels across the United States and in Mr. Combs's home. Uh, the suit says that he instructed Cassie to search the websites of escort services to procure male sex workers. Wild, man. All this stuff is crazy. You know, you already got people reacted to it. Uh, 50 reacted to it. You know, 50's always been the type to uh, clown uh, Diddy and said that Diddy's got some weird stuff going on with him. And, you know, uh, he hasn't he hasn't been wrong in that case. He said, damn, brother love, brother love, brother love. You're out here looking crazy as a motherfucker with a funny, uh, you know, picture of him looking at the whole situation that's going on. Um, yeah, man, we'll, we'll keep our eye on this and see what happens. What do you guys think? Do you guys think this is just a money grab? From Cassie, you guys think she's telling the truth? I do know there are a lot of stories about Diddy, you know, just doing weird things um, from a lot of people, from Diddy's former bodyguard, uh, I think Gene Deal is his name, uh, but a lot of former people that used to work for Diddy have voiced their opinion on a lot of things and just voiced their experience on a lot of things. And, um, you know, it's looking like a surviving Diddy uh, saga is probably going to come upon us because if Cassie did this, I wouldn't be surprised if more people come out and say, you know what, Cassie's Cassie's probably the biggest one, or maybe we don't know. I mean, we don't know. He could have done this to another celebrity. It's huge. But Cassie's, you know, a celebrity. So, you know, other people coming out and adding on to it can get really, really bad. Um, from the stories of dangling people over hotel balconies, trying to attack Suge Knight, blowing up Kid Cudi's car, and then all these abuse stuff that he's done to Cassie throughout since they basically dated in 2005 or six, uh, wild man, wild stuff. And I'm not going to be surprised if more stuff comes out. This is a, a, a perfect, perfect opportunity for Keefe D. He is right now in his cell cheesing like a motherfucker because now he has this open gate to potentially get something going in terms of the whole $1 million hit on Tupac's life. Um, cause this is, this is just, if this starts to, you know, the fire starts, the smoke, and then it starts to turn to a huge fire and starts spreading like crazy, Keefe D is going to have a hell of a route to go when it comes to this. Um, so, you know, we'll see. We'll see. These are all allegations. Make that very clear. These are all allegations. Nothing has been proven as true yet. Uh, you got Kid Cuddy confirming that the, the car situation is true. We don't know if Suge Knight's going to say something. Uh, you know, because Suge Knight is mentioning this, and Suge Knight's doing his podcast while he's locked up as well. So maybe Suge Knight will say something about this. Maybe not. He's not the type of person to usually speak, you know, about these type of incidences. But, you know, we'll see. This is, like I said, perfect moment for Keefe D. We'll see. Uh, let me know what you guys think in the comments below. Did Diddy do this? Are these allegations true? Do you think it's a money grab? Um, you know, have you heard different stories of Diddy? I'm currently working 
on the Diddy $1 million hit documentary where I'm going to be exploring, you know, did actually, did he pay that $1 million to get uh, Tupac killed? I'm doing that documentary. It's going to be out in a couple of weeks. So if you're new to the channel, subscribe. I'm going to release it, uh, you know, a couple of weeks and we'll see uh, based off my research if Diddy actually has a solid, uh, you know, if there's solid evidence against Diddy that he actually did that. Um, and then we're going to keep an eye on this and see what happens in this situation because it is very crazy, very crazy story. Stuff straight out of a movie and, uh, you know, surviving Diddy might be next. And just like that, in less than 24 hours, the lawsuit that Cassie filed against Diddy claiming abuse and various other things has officially been settled. This might be historically the fastest lawsuit that has been settled that has gone public at least. And a lot of people are wondering why did it get settled? What's the reason behind it? Initially, when Cassie said she wanted to go public with this, Diddy had offered her eight figures, which could have been anywhere from 10 million to 99 million, 999,000. But Cassie rejected that offer and instead went for 30 million in the lawsuit. And apparently now it seems like Diddy's willing to pay that 30 million. Initially, Diddy said it was blackmail and that he would never accept that amount. But going public with something will tarnish your image. And that's exactly what's happening right now. So the lawsuit uh, got settled immediately, and we don't know the amount that was paid. Both have released statements after the settlement, and it's an undisclosed amount of which she settled for. This is what Diddy said after the settlement. We have decided to resolve this matter amicably. I wish Cassie and her family all the best love, a.k.a. brother love. In another statement, Combs's lawyer, Benjamin Braffman, clarified that the decision to settle is in no way an admission of wrongdoing, he added. Mr. Combs' decision to settle a lawsuit does not in any way undermine his flat-out denial of the claims. He is happy they got to a mutual settlement and wishes Miss Ventura the best. Cassie said this in her statement, I have decided to resolve this matter amicably on terms that I have some level of control. I want to thank my family, fans, and lawyers for their unwavering support. Diddy's lawyer did say this once the lawsuit was first filed. He said, for the past six months, Mr. Combs has been subjected to Cassie's persistent demand of $30 million under the threat of writing a damaging book about the relationship, which was unequivocally rejected as blatant blackmail. Despite withdrawing her initial threat, Cassie has now resorted to filing a lawsuit riddled with baseless and outrageous, outrageous lies aiming to tarnish Mr. Combs' reputation and seeking a payday. So it started out with, hey, we're not going to settle this lawsuit, but within a day, it's been settled and a lot of people are wondering how and why this happened so quickly. And I want to go back to a lawsuit that happened to one of the biggest, if not the biggest star ever, Michael Jackson. And the reason why I'm using Michael Jackson's child uh, you know, abuse claims or lawsuits that he had a while ago as examples, because this could be relatable to what Diddy's going through. And I'm not saying that Diddy's innocent or guilty in what I'm saying. I'm just saying going to use these as examples to to break down as to why Diddy would settle something like this. Before I talk about Michael Jackson's case and how it relates to this and the examples of settlement and what could you know possibly come out of it, I want to talk about if Diddy is innocent or guilty and what somebody would do in a situation like this if they were innocent or guilty. Let's talk about Diddy potentially being innocent. So if he was an innocent person, right, and somebody sued him of something that he knew he didn't do. The average person, including me, would fight the lawsuit, especially at the level that Diddy is at. Diddy's a huge worldwide known name. 
He's a damn near a billionaire. If he's not, he's a billionaire already. He's like worth $800 million to a billion dollars. He has more than enough money to fight this in court. But an innocent person would settle just for the simple fact that if they drag this out, that it would make him look even worse as time goes on because it's going to be in headlines left and right. With settling it this quick, it makes it so it goes away faster and people forget about it as time goes on because there's going to be new headlines that come out and people just move on from the situation. Because it's something so crazy that it's going to hang around his legacy forever. So him trying to settle this immediately is something to just make it go away as quickly as possible. And here comes the Michael Jackson comparison in terms of his lawsuits. So in 1993, when he got sued for child abuse, back then he settled immediately. Even though years later, and even after he passed, it was proven that he was innocent and there was no evidence of any wrongdoing. Now, why did Michael Jackson settle at that moment knowing he was innocent? The lawsuit was settled in January 1994, for $23 million, with $5 million going to the family's lawyer. So basically the family walked away with about $18 million in their pocket after Michael Jackson immediately settled. Why did Michael Jackson immediately settle? Simple. He said that it was weighing too much on him. It was stressing him out. It was uh, interfering with his creativity when it comes to making music. Stuff like that. And that's a huge, huge thing to be accused of you know, doing things to children is a whole different you know, level, and that's going to stress out anybody. So he immediately settled the lawsuit, and his lawyers were against that. Off the rip, they were against that because they said, hey, if you're going to settle this, this is going to open a floodgate of more people wanting to sue you because they're going to see it as a get-rich-quick you know, scheme that they can pull through you. And ultimately, as the years went on, Michael Jackson did regret settling that. He should have fought that, he said in court. Even his lawyer said he should have fought that. But that was a mistake that he made. His lawyer said, don't, you know, have Neverland Ranch be this wide open place that kids can go to and enjoy. They said, close that off and make it more, you know, make it more uh, closed off to where, you know, not everybody can come in and out. And Michael Jackson said, no, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm not doing anything wrong. We settled that. We moved on from that. Well, what happened after that is, you know, in 2005, he got sued again for these child allegations and stuff. They actually fought the trial in 2005, but got sued about it in 2003. So that ended up going to actual trial. And obviously, you know, the result of that was Michael Jackson wasn't guilty. They went through everything, found out that, you know, he's got nothing to, to, you know, he had no evidence of anything, any wrongdoing. So in this case with Diddy, him settling, even if he's innocent, is going to open the floodgates for more people, more women to come out and sue. Because they're going to be like, oh, Diddy doesn't want to fight this. He wants to push this, you know, to the side and not have to deal with it. Well, here comes a bunch of other people coming for money. That's what that's what's going to be the repercussions of settling this as an innocent person. If you're truly innocent, you would fight this. I know I would fight this with all my might, with whatever money I had, especially if I was a billionaire, because I got money to blow on lawyers to where it could go to a $50 million case, and it wouldn't really affect me like that. But the stress levels of it and dealing with it day in and day out is another reason why an innocent person would want to settle. And that's a perfect, the perfect example is Michael Jackson's case. If Diddy is innocent, that's a reason why he would settle. Now let's flip it. And if Diddy's guilty, why he would settle. Uh, settling when you're guilty, obviously is going to shut the situation off as quickly as possible. If you're guilty and it goes to trial and Cassie potentially has video footage, photos, uh, uh, witnesses, whatever the case may be, and it goes to trial that's going to look horrible to Diddy. 
And that's going to, you know, completely tarnish, you know, anything that he's ever got, you know, going for him. And it was a civil lawsuit, so he wasn't going to face any jail time, but he was going to obviously lose the $30 million, And on top of that, uh, ru- ruin his complete legacy, whatever legacy he has. Of course, if Diddy is guilty, it's going to lead to a lot of different things because all this paperwork and all these allegations coming out with Kid Cudi confirming that, hey, you know, Diddy tried to blow up my car. That's wild that the Kid Cudi confirmed that. That's a whole different situation. And then you got the Sugar Knight story. You got the Wale dangling from the hotel story. Now it's going to open the floodgates of a lot of things. So a lot of people had mixed, confused feelings, including me. I was like, why would Cassie settle this so quickly if she really cared about, you know, getting justice? Uh, Diddy wasn't going to serve time. It was a civil court case. So she would she would have got money out of the situation. She wouldn't have gotten, you know, Diddy locked up. But she did her job. Going public with this is now, you know, all this information came out. What it's going to do now is it's going to cause other people to start doing things. But you can also look at it on the flip side. Like I said, if Diddy's innocent, it's just going to open the floodgates for people to accuse him of things because he's just going to settle them. You know, obviously, if he, if he feels like he's not, you know, uh, guilty in these situations, if he gets sued in the future relating to this stuff, He's probably going to fight it in court because he's going to be like, this person has no evidence of me. But Cassie, settling that quick, that to me says that she had evidence. She had something on him that would have, you know, tarnished him a lot. Overall, it's a horrible situation for Diddy because it's already gone public. People know the details, whether it's true or not. In the court of public opinion, just that lawsuit itself is going to cause a lot of damage to Diddy. The smart thing Diddy should have done is accepted Cassie's $30 million quote-unquote blackmail. That's what he said. It's blackmail. So he should have just accepted it because had she just gotten the money, she probably would have never said anything ever. And, you know, at that point, we would have never known about this. Everybody would have been moving on with their lives. And, you know, Diddy would have been cool. His image would have been somewhat protected in the situation. Now it's all over the place. And I'm sure more and more people are going to come out and sue and tell stories. Now, there's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of people in interviews that said they've seen these type of things happen. There's somebody that talked about the Wale, you know, dangling from the balcony story that was there, an engineer that was in the studio, saw it happen. So it's it's bad overall. This is nothing good for Diddy, whether he settles it or not. 50 Cent even reacted to the settlement, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. He said, LOL, he paid that money real quick. Should have done that before the Sharks saw the blood in the water. And here they come in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Every woman he put his hand on. So they're all going to come out. And, you know, accuse Diddy of these things. Now, we don't know. We don't know if this is true or not. You know, at the, I want to make that very clear. We don't know if Diddy actually did this stuff. All it is is a claim. It's a lawsuit. Uh, anybody can get sued for anything. You know, you just need proof. So him settling that to me says that, you know, maybe she had something on him. Maybe he actually did do some of this stuff. Because, like I said, if I was an innocent person, and especially at that level of a billionaire... I understand if you're a regular person and it's expensive to fight because court, you know, lawsuits and just fighting in court is an insane amount of money it costs. But at that level, being a billionaire, man, I would I would fork up a hundred million, two hundred million dollars, three hundred million dollars because nah, man, that's, I'm, I'm I'm innocent. Why would I Why would I deal with this type of situation? I think anybody would do that, uh, especially you know if you're really, really, truly innocent and you're you know you don't want your image being tarnished. Um, so we'll keep our eye on this, but that's the reason why somebody would settle in these situations. Michael Jackson's case is probably one of the best, uh, examples of why you don't settle, especially if you're innocent, because it's going to come 
back to bite you in the ass and haunt you uh, because Michael Jackson had to deal with that situation in 2005 again, and that affected his health a lot. His lawyer at the time, his main lawyer, talked about how he got he couldn't sleep. He got really skinny. He got more reliant on drugs, which is the same drugs that killed him in 2009. So, you know, that's it's a, it's a stressful process. So someone as an innocent person not wanting to go through that, I can understand that completely, especially when you're in the public eye doing it. It's stressful just being a regular citizen having to deal with this type of stuff. Imagine with the whole world watching. So, yeah, let me know what you guys think. Is Diddy guilty or innocent with this settlement? Do you think he's hiding something? Is more lawsuits going to come his way? I personally think, yes, there's going to be a lot more coming, and it's not going to look good for Diddy overall. It's a bad situation on both ends. Cassie walks away with the money. Cassie's probably going to figure out a way to still get at Diddy regardless of her getting her money. So, uh, overall, crazy situation. And Drake has something to get off his chest, man. After he dropped for all the dogs, he received a lot of backlash from hip-hop heads, mainly saying that Drake lost his touch and that he wasn't about bars and that he was just about hanging out with young people and making young people's music. The older people were like, what the hell happened to Drake? He used to rap about meaningful things, and then all of a sudden he starts rapping about TikTok dances. So... Uh, of course, Drake heard all of that. Mainly the criticism came from Joe Budden, who, you know, criticized him in his music and then criticized who he hangs out with and stuff like that. And that, you know, that rubbed Drake the wrong way. Drake ended up responding in a bunch of Instagram comments and social media posts. But Drake has decided to respond in the music by releasing a new EP, a.k.a. an extension of For All the Dogs, which is Scary Hours 3. And that is six new tracks where he was addressing a lot of what was said about him, which is kind of like Eminem's Kamikaze where, uh, you know, he dropped Revival, got a bunch of backlash, and then decided to drop a whole album a year later addressing everyone that talked about him. And on this Scary Hours 3, he's addressing not only the criticism, but he's addressing a lot of former enemies that he's had and enemies that he currently has. Drake also revealed that he recorded this project in five days, didn't write anything down, just decided to record randomly because he had a bunch of pent-up uh, stress, anger, whatever the case may be. And he said within five days, made these six songs and just decided to release them because we know Drake said that he was going to take this one-year hiatus, hasn't done that, He's automatically back into the music, and he's just feeling it right now. So let's go over the tracks where he's addressing people, and let's break down some of these bars. Let's get into the first track, which is titled Red Button. And this title alone you know, speaks volumes. Whenever you push a red button, it's usually ill-advised, especially in war. So on Red Button, uh, he really starts out just a little bit about bragging and that you know he's the best and that he's killing these billboard records and do right and kill everything that Drake Thing that he said a while ago, but there was something interesting that he said. It's not really a diss, it's just a compliment to Taylor Swift. He said, Taylor Swift, the only person that I ever rated. Only one could make me drop the album just a little later. Rest of y'all, I treat you like you never made it. Basically bragging again, talking about that Taylor Swift is so dominant that that's the only artist that can make him change his album date so that he doesn't get outsold by uh, someone. So Taylor Swift is the only one who has that power. And, of course, we know right now Taylor Swift is absolutely killing it, dominating on every chart. She just did, like, 1.6 million on her last project. So uh, that makes total sense. After these Taylor Swift lines, this is where he starts going those subliminal shots at Kanye, Pusha T, 
good music as a label because he starts it saying, leave your label devastated. Even when you pad the stats, period, I never hated, which is referring to title allegedly faking the streams of Kanye West's Life of Pablo album. Then he said, even when you stab me in the back, the vest is metal plated. Basically talking about how Kanye at one point shows love to him, but then switches. And then that's what motivated Drake to do that Mob Ties song on the Scorpion album. He even talked about it in the barbershop with uh, LeBron James of how he thought he was friends with Kanye. Then all of a sudden he turns around and backstabs him. Then he said, trying to see a bee in my circle like I'm getting graded, basically billionaire. Man, all this luggage in the lobby like I'm getting traded. Every time you need me for a boost, I never hesitated. This is a play on words. Yeezy boost Kanye West's shoes. And then he's talking about uh, the time when he helped Kanye write songs for him when he dropped that uh, Ye album. And uh, every time that Yeezy called a truce, he had my head inflated, thinking we're going to finally piece it up and get to levitating. So this is the whole Free Larry Hoover concert uh, when Drake and Kanye got together, did the performance. It would have seemed like they had squashed their beef, but then all of a sudden you're starting to hear things from Kanye, all starting to hear things from Drake, and then it just gets worse and worse with the he, he said, she said stuff. Then he said, think we're going to finally piece it up and get to levitating. Right here he's talking about uh, the song that he helped him with, Lift Yourself. Uh, that song was, this was a beat that was something that Drake really wanted for his album. He flew out to Wyoming, worked with Kanye, even said, you know, hey, I want this song on my album. I really love it. Then a couple weeks later after he did all that, Kanye West released that beat with just Kanye saying stuff like scoopity poop, scoopity boopity boop, like just trolling the whole situation. He continues and says, realize that everything premeditated, basically saying that Kanye has planned all this from the start, that he never really wanted to be friends. And then he said, everyone was good with me, then everyone expression faded. This is where then he starts to shift his focus to push a T. He says, ticking time bomb and they begging me to detonate it. If I press the red button, dog, everybody heaven gated. Press this red button, dog, and everything forever changes. I think what he's referring to here as well is not only Pusha T and going off on him and Kanye, but he's also talking about that moment that when uh, the beef was heightened with Drake and Pusha T and then Drake was going at Kanye, uh, Jay Prince ended up stepping in and said, hey, this needs to stop. And at one point, there was rumors that Drake recorded this song that was going to expose Kanye and talk about allegedly Drake sleeping with Kim Kardashian and all this stuff, but it wasn't going to come out because it would just devastate Kanye and his career and it would just destroy his career. Quote, unquote, whatever, you know, we want to take out of that. Continuing on, this might be, you know, subliminal shots at Kanye as well. He says this, I'll give you a hard pill to swallow. This your medication. Uh, we all know Kanye has been uh, taking medication. There's even a video of Kim Kardashian urging Kanye to take his medication. Uh, then he continues, Drake says, I will fucking pop up on your ass like a revelation. I could tell you better than I show you. This is demonstration. I will fucking leave you in the dirt like some vegetation. Here he might be referring to that easy record that he has with Game, where in the video he's pulling dirt and he's pouring it on Pete Davidson, you know, who he had beef with at that time. So he's probably just throwing subliminals like that. Uh, chemicals is mixing in my brain and killing hesitation. I will fucking force a few shots like a vaccination. For the most part, this track was... You know, shots at Kanye West directly and indirectly at certain points. A little shots at Pusha T and even, uh, you know, some celebration of Taylor Swift and a little bit of, you know, uh, talk about Rihanna and ASAP Rocky and 
you know, how Melissa Ford is the only one that can mend their relationship. So a little bit of mainly Kanye, a little bit of Pusha T, a little bit of Rihanna, and then praise of Taylor Swift. On the next track, stories like my brother, he sends shots subliminally at Joe Budden and even, you know, throws a fun shot at 6'9". So let's go over the bars, and this is where he starts sending shots at Joe Budden. He said, imagine us getting our validation from an ex-musician searching for recognition. Ex-musician Joe Budden, you know, in his IG comedy, said this guy is looking for validation and that he's, you know, he's this washed rapper who never made it to where he, you know, was supposed to be at. So he's, you know, taking his anger out on, you know, myself. And then he says, uh, same story every time they heckle and repetition. I'm top of the mountain. These guys still down at base camp. They planning, they expedition. Y'all the type to catch a charge, head to the deposition, and act like the rapper named after the sex position. Who is he referring to? 6ix9ine, sex position. And he's basically saying, you guys act all tough, but then when things get, you know, sticky, you know how sticky it get. Basically, he's talking about, you know, you're going to go to the feds and, you know, rat like that guy, 6ix9ine. Uh, but he continues on and says, it's like he playing EDM, that guy a chain smoker. Guys want smoke with us. I promise it's game over. Get your ass twist right here. He a cane roller, and then you guys whine to Jay Prince like some grape growers. <laughs> Basically, you know, uh, I think here's a little shot maybe at uh, Kanye or anybody that's that's had issues with Drake that we don't know behind the scenes, and then when things get to the next level that Drake talks about, which is like actual mob stuff, they go to Jay Prince and say, please get Drake off me. I don't want to deal with this. Uh, because in early in the track, he talks about, you know, pistol whipping people and basically, you know, doing mob ties type of things to them. So uh, Drake's got this whole mob mafioso style, especially on this track. Continuing on, and this might be shots at Kendrick. This is a, a kind of a reach on my end. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I'm not saying that this is shots at Kendrick. I think this is, you know, there could, there could be something like that. Uh, seeing that Drake and J. Cole are cool now, this could be slight shots at Kendrick. We don't know. I'm just... Reaching here on this part. Uh, the That one day you wake up and tell him enough is enough. That's how you're going to find out you're not Kobe Bryant to us. Man, you're not Kobe Bryant to us at all. And this Kobe Bryant line, basically, you know, Kobe Bryant retired in his career, got this farewell tour. Everybody loved him when he retired. He's basically saying, listen, when you retire, you're not Kobe Bryant. You're not going to be anything remotely close to that. People aren't going to care about you like that. Why am I saying this is potential shots at Kendrick Lamar? You guys look at the Bitch Don't Kill My Vibe remix cover art. He's got a photo of Kobe and Jordan on there. Um, you know, Bitch Don't Kill My Vibe with the remix is Jay-Z's on that remix. And Kendrick's basically saying that, hey, Jay-Z is Michael Jordan. I'm Kobe Bryant. So I know that's far reach. It's a far reach, guys. So don't, don't attack me for this. I'm just kind of throwing some thoughts out there. Probably not shots at Kendrick. I'm just grasping for straws at this point. Because uh, I really would like to see a Drake versus Kendrick battle. I think that's long overdue. I think that's the prime Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather fight that we never got. Prime, we're talking about. So, um, you know, you could potentially say that they're getting past their prime as well as time goes on. But hopefully we get that. I'm just grasping at straws here. That could be it, though. I don't know. Because Drake is very devious in his bars. So there's a potential chance that that could be shots at Kendrick. I'm going to skip the shoe fits track because they're really just female women talk, stuff like that. Uh, there is speculation that he took a little subliminals at Rihanna about the real estate line, but that's really about it. On Wickman, this is where he sends 
shots at Pusha T, and it's very clear these are shots at Pusha T because of his story of Adidon diss track from 2018. On the first verse, he says, so many shots fired, I need me a clip switch. I'm in that f- bag right now like I'm a lipstick. Sabbatical in Miami, that sh- is holistic. Man, I remember when guys was joking about some tick tick, and now that rapper broke his f- that boy a statistic. Empty clips, yeah, empty clip. If you remember on the story you added on, Pusha T said, OVO hunched over like he 80, tick, tick, tick. How much time he got, that man is sick, sick, sick. So Drake is referencing that and basically saying that Pusha T is broke as fuck. He's another statistic of rappers that just fall off the face of the earth and don't make any money. Although I haven't heard, you know, Pusha T filing bankruptcy or being broke, so I don't know, you know, maybe because he got left of the good, good music label and now he's kind of doing his own thing. Uh, maybe he's referring to that, but then he's like empty clips, empty clips. You guys know Pusha T, Malice, the Clips group. So this is kind of a little, you know, subliminal reference to that as well. Um, but Pusha T is working on a project, Gangsta Grills project with DJ Drama. So, you know, Drake is just constantly poking at Pusha T. It seems like he hasn't gotten over what happened in 2018 that more people, I think the general public sided with Pusha T winning that. For the most part. I mean, there's people that say otherwise, but for the most part, it seems like more people sided with Pusha T winning. And I'm one of those people. I think the story of Adidon is a better diss track than anything Drake responded with. So, uh, you know, even Drake admitted in the interview with uh, LeBron James, I believe, at the shop where he was like, uh, or maybe on Rap Radar, the Rap Radar interview, where he was like, yeah, there might be a chink in my armor, you know, from that. Congratulations. Like, meaning like, you know, somebody got to him at a certain point. But... These shots are just going to provoke Pusha T to actually go more direct because these subliminals going back and forth is just getting annoying at this point. There's been so many subliminals between Pusha T and Drake back and forth that it's just like, come on, guys. Like, go at it again, you know, and go full at it. If you don't want to go full at it, then just shut up both of you guys because this is getting ridiculous. And in verse two of this track, he basically, there's a little subliminal there as well. It says, point me to your boss. You're just a receptionist. Might be we're talking about Pusha T working for Kanye and that he's not a boss of his own label and stuff like that. And really, that's about it in terms of the disses slash subliminals on this Scary Hours 3. Uh, it, it's good. I, I like these tracks, but I do feel like, you know, Drake should have gone harder, man. Just go directly at people. Uh, a lot of people are criticizing you about the album. Should have gone more the Eminem Kamikaze route of just saying F everybody and anybody wants smoke can get it. You know, other than that, Drake's just kind of sending the same subliminals, some direct with Kanye, uh, a little bit with Pusha T as well. But, uh, you know, it's like, I think the Drake and Kendrick thing should happen. I think that's that's long overdue. The two have kind of had their issues back and forth, which I'm going to cover uh, in a What Really Happened uh, video documentary that I'm going to do. So, uh, yeah, let me know what you guys think of Scary Hours 3. I think it's a great, great addition to For All the Dogs. It feeds those, the more hip-hop heads like me, um, and the records were, were great in my opinion. So, uh, yeah, let me know what you guys think. And is Pusha T going to respond? Is Kanye West going to respond? Because Kanye's working on an album with Ty Dolla Sign right now. So it's going to be interesting to see if, you know, uh, you know, Kanye hears all this and if he says anything. After the Drake Scary Hours 3, uh, people were waiting on Joe Budden's response. And actually, they're waiting. A lot of people were waiting on Joe Budden's response to Diddy's situation because... Uh, you know, Joe Budden is, is, has done business with Diddy, has been on the Revolt Network, 
And uh, to be honest with you, Joe Budden basically cowered out. Uh, they don't want to talk about the Diddy situation at all, uh, which is just, it's a soft move on Joe Budden's part. It just shows that he has friends in the industry and is scared to say certain things about certain people. When in reality, there's a, a old clip that surfaced because it's been on uh, X right now. That's, that's everybody's talking about it. Old clip has surfaced that Joe Bunn's like, oh, I don't care what relationship I have with people. I'm going to speak the truth of what it is and blah, 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 blah. Well, he decided not to do that with the Diddy situation. Now, regarding the Drake and Scary Hours 3, he also didn't say anything. It just seems like he wasn't really in a talkative mood. So let me play the clip for you guys. You got to give us something, Joe, about it. I know you heard it. Not a peep. At all. Not a one word about it. Not one word. Interesting. I'm here to listen to y'all. I have absolutely nothing to say. Well, should we play it? Why, why don't you have anything In like real time for him is to hear? Is it because it's shot for everything a... that I just said in the Audrey 3000 flutes conversation? Hmm. I want to keep my thoughts to myself. Oh, okay. Okay. Really? Mm-hmm. Sometimes well, you reserve well, that right think, to well, do that. that. No, I respect that. I, I just, yeah, you want to keep it to yourself? So yeah, he, he clearly uh, is disconnected from the situation because I think he feels like, hey, I'm a big Drake fan and for Drake to go at me still, you know, just because I critiqued his album is weird to him and let's 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 keep it a bug let's keep it 100 here when joe budden was rapping and going at drake joe budden was washing drake drake bar for bar can't go up against certain rappers like joe budden is one of those rappers that will slaughter you bar for bar because that's just that's his pocket that's what he knows you know drake knows how to make hits and can rap lyrically certain points here and there as well to deny that Drake can't rap is wild to me. And don't throw that bullshit ghostwriting rumors at me because that's he's written records for other people. It just shows you that, you know, the ghostwriting shit. When people throw that at me, oh, he's a ghostwriter, he has ghostwriting. Oh, Drake can't write, he has ghost. No, man. Drake can write, he's written records for other artists. That tells you right there he's a great writer. Um, but that's the difference. There's a rapper and there's writers. Drake is an amazing writer, can write great hits, can make a song that's going to, you know, blow up and become, you know, something that everybody can enjoy. Joe Budden is hip-hop's hip-hop. The hip-hop heads that enjoy that gritty, lyrical stuff Joe Budden can deliver. So, you know, when Joe Budden was going at Drake, destroyed him. Like, you guys got to go listen to those. I think it was 2016, 2017, around there. Destroyed him. Uh, so, Joe Budden being the retired rapper that he is, you know, I don't blame him for not really saying anything because it's like, eh, if I really, when, when I was going at Drake, you guys weren't really paying attention or clowning me and saying that I'm not, you know, who I am. So, and it, it, what Joe Budden said came from a place of, like, love because he's one of the Drake's biggest fans. He's like, why are you doing this type of stuff? And all that, that, that critique, that's why we got Scary Hours 3, is because of that critique. It's because people critiquing artists, making them angry. And that's why we got Eminem's Kamikaze, which to me is one of my favorite Eminem albums. Especially in the 2010s, you know, during that Eminem era. Because Eminem's had, like, fucking millions of eras. And that's because of all the critiquing of people being honest with an artist. We need to be honest because that's that's going to put a fire under their ass to make better music. When you're not honest with your, with your favorite artist and you like everything they release, you're going to get subpar music. So this is just a perfect example of that. You know, so... Uh, in terms of the Diddy stuff, though, you know, Joe Budden, come on, man. Don't pick and select and choose. Salute to academics. Um, 
I normally don't agree with a lot of stuff he says, but this he's in the right in this situation because he um you know he he called them out. He called out Breakfast Club, who's under revolt, uh, which is Diddy's network, whatever. He called all Breakfast Club. All Breakfast Club said is all oh, prayers for everybody involved. Like no, there's serious accusations. Get into this details of your boss of what your boss you know had done. Don't be scared to talk about it. That's not that's that's that just shows you that it's all about connections, money, power, control. You can control what people say. And that's stupid, man. I, I never want to be in that position. And that's why I would never hear. Here's my my truth for me and my career. You know, a lot of people are thrown at me because I'm a 50 Cent fan. They throw at me that, hey, you should sign a G-Unit Films and television and, you know, 50 should, should you know, put your YouTube channel under that and, you know, you should, you know, do content and 50 can fund documentaries that you do. I would only do that under one condition. And that's the freedom to say whatever I want, even if 50 did something bad. The mic throwing incident, you know, so whatever, whatever the case 50's done, you know, or let's say something comes out with 50 that he, you know, I don't know, slapped somebody, you know, or he did that, you know, that kid, he actually joked around with that one kid a while ago uh, that was like had a, he had like a disability and 50 didn't know. He thought he was on drugs and he like went up to him in an airport and like said, man, what the fuck? Like the drug's killing these kids and, turns out the kid had a disability and 50 apologized and actually, you know, uh, went to visit him in the hospital and donated money to him and whatever the case may be. Um, those type of situations, I would critique 50 and be like, and 